So good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. And thank you for all your metta. But last night I wasn't feeling well, and I woke up this morning feeling great. So Eugene was like, we did metta for you. So thank you for that. Feeling good. And um, yeah, it's a powerful time. Powerful time in the retreat and in life in general and just very profound. And tonight I wanted to talk some about the merging of wisdom and compassion or the balancing of these qualities. This retreat has had more of the flavor of wisdom. Some people have mentioned that today in meetings. Yeah, they say, oh yeah, it's more, I haven't done a lot of metta, or, um, or just that some retreats just have a, a, a certain flavor, and it's beautiful. And so I want to talk tonight about merging them, how we grow uh, in wisdom and compassion, how one fuels one quality, and they, they work together. And there's this beautiful prophecy that I love, a South American prophecy uh, about the eagle and the condor. And uh, 500 years, they talked about it in the, I guess it's been around for a long time in the Mayans and also in the Amazonian traditions and the Andes. And so the, the idea is that this, the condor, which is the South American bird, it represents Gaia in a way, the earth, love, the heart, right? It's a very venerated bird, you know, the condor is a great bird. And it sort of represents also the softness, the feminine qualities. And then we have the eagle, right? And that represents the North American tradition, but that's more of the mind, right? Kind of more like technology, and it's more of the doing energy, sort of like associated maybe, maybe with more masculine, but not necessarily. And they said for 500 years there would be a balance, sort of it went out of balance, right? Where for 500 years the eagle energy would dominate the condor energy in an unhealthy way, right? And it would, it would, it would reach a point where it would become a crisis, but then they said in 500 years the eagle and the condor will come together and unite, so they'll they'll be they'll be together, and so um, you see that the north and the south, and they come together in that way. So I always found that to be a beautiful metaphor for also our own, the heart and the mind. Right? We always feel like there may be this split there, like my mind wants one thing and my heart wants another. Have you ever found yourself in that situation, or you go I have a big decision? Do I follow the heart or do I think logically? You know, I often get that on retreat, working with young people too. They come in, what should I do? Should I go left or right? One part of me wants this, one part wants that. And that same, that same dilemma affects us in the Dharma seat. Actually, what are we following? What are, where, where is our compass uh, connected? Where, where are we going with that? And so to, it's not that one is better than the other. We actually need both of these sides of ourselves. We need to have the intellectual capacity to look deeply at the nature of things. And then we need the heart to hold that, right? We need to develop this compassion to meet the truth of life, to meet things as they are, with all of its beauty and all of its pain and suffering. You know, this life that we get is so bittersweet. 
You know, there's this um, huge joy and then huge sorrow and then joy again and sorrow and the coming together and the falling apart and the, and how do we hold all that in our heart and in the world? You know, these two qualities um, become very much like the pillar for us, this wisdom and this compassion. So what does a wise person understand? What is true wisdom anyway? That's a good, it's a good place for us to look, to start. There is this funny joke in The New Yorker. You know the New Yorker cartoons. I always wonder who writes all that stuff. They really they can hit on some good ones. But there was this funny one. I had it for a long time. I couldn't find it tonight. But it was uh, basically this frame where this man is on this quest looking for a guru. And so he's like looking and then they show him scaling the Himalayan mountain, right? And he's like struggle and sweating. And, and then the next little frame is he gets to the cave and in there is a sadhu, the type that, you know, this beard and the, all he was wearing was just like a holy scarf and that's it, right? And then snow and he's like, I found the answer, right? He gets up there and he's like, yes. And he, he, in the fourth frame is him asking this question with all this sincerity. What is the meaning of life, right? And then the, the sadhu opens his eyes and starts laughing. He said, if you think if I knew the meaning of life, I'd be sitting up here in my underwear. <laughs> I like, I don't know, right? And the guy's like, oh, all this effort. I need to understand what, what is wisdom, right? And that's kind of how we, we are, right? We're like, what, well, what is it? What, what is this experience about? I ask myself that all the time, you know, in the middle of things, like, wow, what is, what is wisdom? And so I think from the Dharma perspective, we can look at it as a deep understanding about what leads to freedom and what doesn't <laughs> at a fundamental level. So sometimes people, um, there was, a, I think I was in a meeting with someone, and um, we were talking about in the Dharma, there's no, in Buddhism, there's no sin, right? Even the good and bad is, isn't really relatable so much. It's what's skillful and what's unskillful. It's a much better way to understand how we live our lives. Okay, so skillful action leads to happiness. Unskillful action leads to pain, right? And it's not about a judgment. It has nothing to do with that because actions are complex, what is the root of an action is truly the motivation in the heart, right? They can have very different results based upon what, what, we, what the mind state is. So a wise being over time develops this quality to refrain from unskillful action. Why? Because it hurts. <laughs> and we don't want to hurt anymore. We get to a place where we're like, okay, I get it. I don't want to carry the hot coal in my hand. Right? Oh, it's easier to put it down. And that's compassion. Compassion is what enables us to put down these deep clinging, these suffering, this, this way that we view things, our distorted beliefs. Right? So we see it with wisdom, and then it's the love of the heart that says, Honey, stop. You know, stop. Put it down now. You can put this down. And then we, we learn in that way how to put things down. 
how to grow. And then over time we start planting the seeds of skillful action, right? Enlightenment, they say, is an effect from many causes, many seeds planted, right? We generate this, this effect in the heart and the mind. It takes time. So when we look at suffering and freedom, and we look at what is wisdom, and the Dharma, the first link of the Eightfold Path, is wise view. Actually, the first part of the Eightfold Path, which we're following here, is wisdom. Like, so we, for the outset, we, we, we want to have the right view. So let's look at the Four Noble Truths. I like to look at it from an Ayurvedic perspective. Okay, first noble truth. You go to the doctor. Sorry, you have a sickness. Oh no, I have a sickness, right? We, oh, we react. But we kind of know that though, somewhere deep down, right? <laughs> Something's felt off for a long time, but we get this diagnosis. There's a sickness. Then the doctor looks at you and says, there's a cause of it though. There's a cause to this. So that's kind of good news, right? It's like, okay, there's a cause, but we're still stuck in that a little bit. Like, oh my God, there's a sickness. There's a cause to the sickness. Um, the third one, the noble truth, the good news is that you can be 100% cured. That's really good news in a way. Sometimes we get stuck on the first one and we forget that there is a cure, right? We just hear, oh no, right? And we can't move past that. But there's a, there's a cure, and the Eightfold Noble Path is the prescription. It is the cure. It is our, what is the medicine that we take. It's mindfulness. It's the heart. It's cultivating. And the first part of that path is the development of the wise view. Right? It's like seeing things clearly. And part of that wise view and the development of wisdom is understanding what leads to suffering and what doesn't. It's causes and effects. Right? And we start to see that the more we act in a kind way, the happier we are. I thought it was so great when Pam, in her talk, was saying that it had, again, I think from Gina, you said you, were, you got this text that generosity is the cause of happiness. Right? It's like, yes, because these wholesome seeds that we plant, that is what we reap. If you plant apple seeds, you get an apple tree. You might want oranges, but you'll get apples. And that's where the delusion fundamentally comes in. We want apples, but we keep planting orange tree seeds, <laughs> not knowing, not seeing clearly, right? We keep planting the seeds of suffering. So the wise person really begins when wisdom is developed, we start to wake up slowly, yes. Out of our compassion, we start planting more and more of the seeds. It's not about something coming from the outside. It's not about acting holy. It's not about following a dogma. It's an inner dialogue that says, yes, I want to be happy. And when I engage in certain activities, I suffer. I don't do anything anymore. I, you know, because what has happened over time is when I sit on the meditation cushion, regret and there's nothing like being eaten away by regret. Has anyone had that experience here? you just like, oh, I can't believe I did that or said that. And it's healthy to do that, actually, to reflect. Because sometimes we're, we're unconscious. And then we, we act in ways, and then later the wisdom comes to see 
and we hurt ourselves in that moment. Right? I don't want to, loving you is easier. <laughs> right? It's peace for me. Right? I don't want to hurt myself anymore. So the practice takes on a different flavor. So with your wisdom and this idea of like every moment I'm planting seeds, it's important to look at your practice in that way. Whether you're conscious or not, you're planting. We are seed planters, moment to moment. Just because we're not aware doesn't mean we're exempt, (laughs) right? There's something always cooking in there, right? And we're either strengthening a fundamental delusion or we're inclining the mind towards freedom, And the wise view and wise intention, that's the second link in the the wisdom aspect of the noble path, is that we start to intentionally uh, cultivate the mind. This is where we get wise. We we start coming here and then we're like, ah, I'll go on a retreat, right? Because I'll really look deeper and I'll start to become more mindful, right? This is helpful for my life. There's less suffering, even though the suffering is highlighted on retreat, it's still the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, right? You know that quote they say, there's suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end. We all have to unpack our burden, our karmic knots we, we get. We all, everybody has that, whether you're, you're poor, you're rich. If you're rich, you have rich people karma to sort through. If you're poor, you have poor people karma to sort through. If you, whatever, you know, this is just, what our experience is. We work with that. And this is, and whatever we have that we carry is perfect to awaken. We don't need anything else. And over time, there becomes wisdom in that. You know, when I grew up, I had a really traumatic childhood. And for like some years, I thought, why me? Why did I have to go through all that? And now I see the wisdom in it. It's like, oh yeah, I had to go through that so I could understand that. I had to go through that so I'd develop this, right? I had to, and then I start to see that there's not mistakes, right? That our, there's an intelligence operating here, you know? That we can trust the difficulties that are in our lives because they are the doorways to awakening now. Now I kind of like the shadow. First I was avoiding a lot of that, like, oh, 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 like for years. But now when things are really hard or really triggered, I know if I can go in there with love and compassion, I can see the gem. So we're less likely with that wisdom to push life away. We're more likely to embrace it up and go, okay, what is this? Can I meet this? Right? What's happening on the inner level? What's happening within the family dynamic? What's happening in this community situation can i can i be present for that right because we see the potential gift in it the struggle i mean would you accept a cancer diagnosis if it knew if you knew it would liberate your heart would you do it sometimes we don't choose but it happens right and we can use any situation to grow that's a really big shift in, in, in reality when you start looking at life in that way. Because then you look at everything as school. And I always say that in our Oakland community. 
And I spend a lot of time in the East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland teaching a lot of classes. And I always say, all right, the school of life is in session. Who is here and paying attention? <laughs> right? Because if you're not, what happens? In a classroom, if you're not really paying attention, you have to repeat the course. <laughs> and I used to teach a lot in schools when I was younger, right, in mindfulness, and there was always the front row. And the front row teachers love. They, just, they often just look at the front, right? And those are the students ready, and you call them, and they have all and they have their homework, and everything's organized, and they're very enthusiastic. And then as you steadily get more toward the back, right? It's like sleepier and sleepier. And then finally the back row is just asleep, head on desk, right? The teachers kind of look at that row like, okay. But then that group shows up at the next, you know, summer school and on and on, right? And that's the samsaric nature of life, actually, is this repetitive circle, right? We keep going. Wait, didn't I already do this? Wait, is this really familiar? Deja vu? Is this the same relationship? Is this the same dynamic? Is this, you know, that is samsara. Right? Until we start to wake up, that we wander in the same pattern. Right? The same scenario. Visiting again and again. That is the definition of suffering. Dukkha. Right? Getting, you know, we do this, we get that. We do that, we get this. It's imperative that we start to cultivate the mind and plant different seeds, right? If we just keep planting the same ones, that's the harvest we reap over and over again. So for me, the Dharma has a lot of promise and I have a lot of faith in it because of its transformative capacity. And it's not an overnight thing. You know, at first I did used to think that when I was young, okay, maybe a three-month course, I'm there. It's like, wow, this is the beginning of something here. This is kindergarten. (laughs) And that's okay because the wisdom of being a beginner is essential. Don't, please, I beg you, don't become an expert. Right? Because it, it just takes away the ability to be fresh in the moment, to be alive. Right? We filter everything from all of our past things, you know? Instead, we just keep being alive in the moment. So with the more wisdom developed, the more the view of truth and beauty and what leads to happiness, we become, our actions become purified. This is a path of purification. I use that all the time of just doing laundry. You know, I think I use the analogy during a matter of cleaning the garage out, right? It's just endless hauling out, sorting out. Have you noticed that? Sorting out all the tangles. The Buddha once said, he looked at some, the group and he said, who can untangle the great tangle? The whole world's in a tangle. Inner tangles, outer tangles. Right? And here we are on retreats just sorting out all these knots. And, like, and we get to the end of some of them, right? We, we feel good about that at the end. We like, we, we, it is something to that. And it's one step at a time of seeing clearly. Untangling the confused, the confused mind with the understanding that at its core nature, it's never been confused. That's really important to see, too, with wisdom, that at the heart of it all, there's a purity that's not tainted by any of the tangles. It's a tangle-free jewel right in the middle, right? And it's just waiting, you know, as we uncover it moment after moment. 
So it's really also important to see that as a, as a, a framework. And that's actually really challenging for people to believe that at their core there's light and beauty and wisdom. That also really attracted me to the Dharma when I was very young. It was like, oh, you're enlightened, but you just forgot. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I could resonate with that. Instead of maybe a view that, sorry, you're fundamentally flawed forever, you better spend your life begging on the desert, walking across on your knees, you know, and maybe you'll get somewhere, maybe you won't. But it's, this is much more empowering. Like, at your core, there's this innate beauty and compassion, the mind radiant, all these beautiful words to describe it. But it's obscured. That is all. It's obscured. So to, so to feel into that framework is also part of the wisdom. Because that informs us on our actions in the world. If we see ourselves as that, we respond to, to life in a certain way. Right? We, we develop wise view and we develop really wholesome intention. And you want that intention to be wholesome. Your motivation is everything. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it leading to happiness? This is very important to reflect on because we can put a lot of energy a wholeheartedly into things that actually create suffering, not knowing. And we will do it with a ferocity, right? And then we end up at a certain place and we think, how did I get here? I feel so sad or empty inside. It wasn't what I had anticipated, right? So it's good to do that kind of checking in. And I'm sure this time of year, this is really the time, right? New Year's, reflecting on the old, letting go, the ritual. And what do we want to bring in? And we can create wholesome intentions. It's important in that way. And then with all the wisdom that starts to come, we start to see that the real response to life that makes sense we, we stop responding to life in ways that just don't, which is mostly fighting our way through. We're great fighters, right? We'll just get out those gloves and something comes along. And we start to see the futility of that, like fighting the moment, trying to get rid of things all the time. It just doesn't work. You push something down here, it pops up 20 times bigger over here, right? It's like, oh. In the end, we start to surrender. <laughs> and the surrendering comes with this compassion, Right? It's like, yes, instead of responding with my habitual reactivity, what if I just open? For me, that was something very powerful about the Buddha's practice. It was like all this stuff going on in the world, right? and he's sitting there. And instead of pushing any of it out, all of this chaos is just open to it. Open to it all. The fear, the hate, the longing, the lust, the greed, the hatred the bliss, right? It's like, just open to all of this, open. And we can't shut life down. This is why compassion makes sense. We have these sense doors, okay? We, and we're like satellite dishes. Hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, thinking, right? Hearing, and we walk out and we're bombarded <laughs> every second. Ah, how are we going to live like that? We manage, but for some people, they hold on to a lot of walls to try to keep out this thing called life because it's intense, right? And we have no control really over the sense doors. 
You know, try to control it for a day, you'll go crazy. At some point we, we bow and go, okay, whatever's going to happen is just going to happen. And it's not that we put ourselves in dangerous situations. But, you know, you, you go to a store and, you know, someone's acting out or something's going on or we're seeing things we don't want to see, we hear things, we all of the senses. And so because we are these open receptors, we feel everything deeply, compassion makes more sense as a response, right? It becomes more of like, oh, when something hurts, how do I respond to it? Right? When something is unpleasant, how am I responding? So this quality is very beautiful when it's well-developed and actually very powerful. I didn't always understand the power of this because for most of us, we grow up and we think of compassion as there's somebody on the street who's homeless, give them a dollar. Okay, I gave the dollar. I'm good. Right? We don't understand the true depth of self-compassion. We mostly view it outward, but the kind of compassion I'm talking about is the moment-to-moment dialogue in the mind. How are we responding to our own internal experience of these sense doors, of this human experience that we cannot control? How, what are, how are we relating to that? I think that in many ways, it's been the difficulties in my own life that have opened me up to understanding this compassion, you know, seeing suffering in a deep way, looking, being interested in, in that. Wendell Berry, one of my favorite poems by him is, is to go into the dark. So he writes, to go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So in some way, that's what happens to us on retreat, is we have to go into the underworld of the mind, the shadows, the places where we don't open the doors too often, and we have to look at what's creating, what are the roots of confusion. And that means sometimes going down, 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 down into the psyche, and reliving things, feeling things. It's actually very courageous retreats. I think it was really funny what Alexis was talking about on his talk where he was saying how in the brochure it's like, spirit rock, like a vacation. (laughs) Come on a vacation. And some of these retreats become the hardest work we've ever done, actually. We need a vacation at the end, you know? My family would always do that to me. I would go on these really long retreats when I was young, three months, six months. And they didn't know what I was doing. And so I would come back and they would say, hope you had a nice vacation spring. You know, and I would say, are you kidding? Cleaning my mind? Do you know what I've just gone through? I need to go on a Hawaii vacation now. They would just look at me because they didn't understand the work that was involved. What I was actually... Uh, you know, healing within myself and the, the development of certain qualities that I was focused on developing and to look deeply and to be present. It was uh, profound. And compassion in many ways is also what heals us, but we have to have a lot of patience with ourselves. There was this great story that I read. I like to tell this because I always I have a lot of... Um, 
concern about our veterans that come home from war and the post-traumatic stress. So this was an article that was forwarded, and then I looked it up and kind of got interested in the whole thing. So there was, um, in San Diego, they started this university started training dogs to work with the soldiers. And what they did was the some soldiers that had come home, no matter what they did, the effects of the PTSD were were growing every day, no matter what the medication or what they were. It was just they felt like they were at death's door. And we see many of them ending their lives. It's a pretty much like a really big epidemic. And so um, one of the worst effects of the post-traumatic stress is night terrors. And what it would do is they couldn't sleep. And if you already are destabilized emotionally and you don't sleep for a long period, it leads to psychotic episodes for sure. It's just anybody that would happen when you cannot sleep. And so they started to take these dogs and they trained these dogs and they started to give them to the soldiers. And what the dogs were amazing, these dogs are, as we know, these animals, animals have their own, they're can be great bodhisattvas too. The dogs were trained to sit up during the night. And so when the soldier started to go into a traumatic episode, the dog would immediately come over and it would put out its paw like this and tap on the heart area, right on the chest, like this. And the soldier would awaken and then see his dog, which immediately comforted him, and the dog would then like lick his face, and he would reorient to the space, right? And then he was able to go back to sleep. And they had a huge success, and I just thought, that's so sweet. Everybody needs a dog like that, right? To be like, <laughs> we're freaking out, the dog just comes over. But they, and they were so cute, the dog would stick out his paw and very carefully, right, just do this rhythmic tapping until the soldier woke up in a non-trauma, you know, a gentle way. Um, and I just found that to be so touching. Again, it was just the power of compassion. You know, and everywhere I look in the world, you know, when there's an issue or a trauma or something's happening, there's always these beautiful helpers everywhere. Right? In any disaster, there's people risking their lives and pulling children out of rubble and nurses and hell, you know? And everywhere, there's always, if we look in the world, there's always huge groups of people going, how can I help? How can I alleviate this? There's a tremendous amount of compassion on this planet, too. We see a lot of uh, destruction, but also we see a lot of innate qualities of people's goodness when times are tough. Right, this this kind of love and care that is in us. And so it needs to sometimes be cultivated, right? We have to remember this aspect of ourselves. You know, we have to remember to touch our heart when we're in a state where we feel like I can't be with this anymore, right? And to keep breathing into that, to keep feeling into that. And it takes a lot of patience. It does, moment after moment. Some of you probably have heard this, um, this funny little story. A martial arts student went to his teacher and said earnestly, I'm devoted to studying your martial system. How long will it take me to master it? The teacher's reply was casual. He looked up, 10 years. 
impatiently, obviously the student answered, but I want to master it faster than that. I'll work very hard. I'll practice it every day, 10 or more hours a day if I have to. How long will it take then? The teacher thought for a moment and smiled and said, 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) So we so we're remembering that we can't rush the enlightened process here. We can't, you know, there's a part of us that's like, get to the end of the line already, right? I want to get to the, the end of the, you know, have you ever met people who read the last pages of books? And then go, yeah, I didn't even need to read any of it. I read the end, right? Or fast forward to the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, they got married. Yeah, I knew it. Or they, they broke up, right? It's like, we can't. Learning that the practice is so paradoxical. The way through is through radical presence now. (laughs) Not, I'll be present later. Let's just hurry up right now and get to that. You know, we have this thing with rushing in our culture. You know, we're instant. We are definitely instant. So over time we start to realize that that's the feudal path. That's actually the long way around the mountain. That is the 20 years, right? And we just start to relax. And the more the compassion is there, the more you want to be in your own mind. It's a soft place to be. Now we don't like meditating that much because it's painful. Most people get up after a few minutes because the mind is just chewing on itself, right? Like, ah, I'm going to go on the internet. I'm too wound up, right? Or we don't like the content. We don't feel safe and comfortable. And so these practices of the heart are about creating the safety. You have to create your own inner refuge. And if you notice that the mind is very overly identified, maybe with intellectualism in the mind or, then you need to find a counterbalance. You need to cultivate the body, cultivate the heart. Why is it important to fill your body? Because this heart is in the body. And this heart has its own wisdom. And you can start to tune into it. You should look at this organization, Heart Math. They do all this research on the heart and how the heart actually can predict a natural disaster way before it happens. It knows things in the body. It has its own, it's like it's alive with its own energy and rhythm. And we can align our, our mind with that. We can start to merge these, what has been a separation, we start to bring them together, right? There's a, there's a schism that starts to happen, right? Where the the intellectual mind, it feels it takes over. And it's, we lose touch with the, our inner warmth. You know, when you meet someone and you say, oh, they're lost in their head, you don't associate that person with being warm-hearted. They don't really go together, right? <laughs> right? But if someone is very loving and warm, you feel their energy, you feel that. And that's what we're cultivating. Why? Because that's your house that you live in. And the more the fire is on, the more you're going to want to sit in there. And you wanna, you'll, you'll feel that. So you see the compassion nourishes the wisdom. Because the more present you are, the more you'll see the nature of reality. Right? And the more wisdom that develops, the more innately we respond to compassion to the suffering. The more compassion is there, the more wisdom can develop. Because the more we're able to look, the mind gets steady, it gets calmer. Right? We're able to see clearly. So they really, in, in many ways, they de- help each other develop. It's a co-creation. It's a dance. 
um, of these qualities. And it does take patience. Another little joke. I think this kind of makes me chuckle. It's called Two More Aisles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle and the little girl began to shout loudly for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry loudly. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a horrible tantrum upon discovering there would be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) Sometimes we have to be that patient with ourselves, right? I can get through the sitting. It'll be all right. (laughs) I can make it, right? And we relate to ourselves with this kindness, right? We stop reacting to the outer, right? It's like, okay, in any way through. And I know for many of you who have children, <laughs> you develop a certain paramis from just being there again and again and again. Somebody was telling me that today, the birth of their daughter, their son, they brought about such a huge shift in their whole reality around practice and the depth of patience and love. And so we want to have that patience with ourselves and also with humanity, right? So compassion is not pity. That's the near enemy. And the near enemy is, you know, what masquerades as the quality. So each of the Brahma Viharas have like a near enemy to that, that looks like it, um, but is not quite the quality. And pity is different because what pity has in it is a lack of understanding interconnectedness. It looks at people and goes, you people over there, wow, so sad, right? Not understanding that just on the flip of a dime, that could be us, right? Maybe those people standing in a bread line or those people who are refugees, right? Or we stop making, with compassion, we stop creating so many others, right? Oh, those people are aliens. It's a strange word to use for humans. I don't understand, you know, or, or the, that group of people. Or, you know, we stop creating all these artificial walls and we just start to see the oneness, right? And all beings. And we start caring about that situation, even if we can't alleviate. See, the problem sometimes with compassion that people get into is they think, I don't, I don't, I can't fix it. So I'm not even going to go there. Of course we can't fix it, right? 
it's not, some of this stuff is not fixable by one being alone, but what we can do is be with it. I don't really try to fix people's suffering. I'm just with it with my whole heart. All we're doing is learning how to be, just like we can't fix our own. If there's an emotion coming, what we learn how to do is be present with it. That's all the world is asking us for, is our presence. And maybe the answers will come. We might figure out how to create a, a project or, or something like that, but we're, we, we can't fix samsara. <laughs> what we can do is learn how to be present in it. And that's a big shift, right? We're not trying to get rid of things. We're just learning how to be with it and understand the wisdom. And more and more as you learn to be present, more insights happen into compassion. It's amazing how my heart is continuously, when we say boundless, I truly mean boundless. I don't even think I understand even a tiny bit of what the Buddha was talking about when he said boundless compassion. (laughs) Even the Dalai Lama says, I just have a little compassion, maybe a tiny bit. It's like, If he says that, my goodness, what is the true depth of this quality? But I do know that more and more my insights are about waking up to the truth of it. My insights, when I sit myself, I have these openings. It's like, oh, yes, another level of compassion arises, right? Something I didn't see before, a way I could soften, a way I could forgive, Right, it comes to me as insight, and that's how insights operate. They come out of the heart. They don't come out of the mind. If we could think our way to freedom, we would be there. We are thinkers. That's something we can do. It doesn't operate like that. It's intuitive wisdom we're talking about with this kind of wisdom and dharma, dharma wisdom. It doesn't come from here. It comes deep in the body as a shift in perception for understanding, right? The heart opens and we see something differently. Just another joke. I felt like it's good to have a few laughs on New Year's Day, laugh at ourselves a little bit. So another joke I like a lot. It's from Farside. I know you can't see it from here, but I like this one because it reminds me of, there's often cows all around here. It's too cold they must all be in barns right now but in the when as soon as it gets warms up the whole fields are dotted with cows and i like that you know they're free free roaming cows um and from the dairies and so there's these three cows and the, they're out in a field okay so one of the cows lifts up its head he's talking to the other two he says hey wait a minute This is grass. We've been eating grass. (laughs) That's his liberating insight. It's kind of (laughs) like, right? It's like the water analogy, the fish in the water, right? And the other cows are like, what? (laughs) But this cow is really mystified, like, I get what's happening here, (laughs) right? And actually, this is how our insights work. Something happens in the heart, it opens, and we cannot believe that we thought the way we did before, or our views were. It was like, what? 
You know, it's suddenly like the lens is clear. You know, the windshield is clear. It's like, oh my goodness, the glasses. I was looking at like, you know, your glasses are all dirty or something and you clean them and you're like, wow, it's so beautiful out here. You know, I didn't see this before. And that's, that's insight. And it comes through wisdom and it comes through the heart. And to cultivate both of these is what is needed in our time. It's not to demonize one aspect of ourselves. No, the wisdom faculty is powerful, right? To be able to see clearly just needs to be balanced with the heart. If it's not, it no longer serves. It starts to serve a different, you know, they say there's a path to Buddhahood and a path to egohood. And they look very similar for a long time. Right, the Tibetans used to say that. They still do minger. My Tibetan teacher, he would say, "Be careful about slipping onto the ego path. This could all be a game too, and your ego strengthens itself through this. Like, oh, we're doing spiritual. Well, I'll be the best one, right? <laughs> Ta-da! And it, and that's that's the losing the Dharma, right? So that therefore, when it starts to go in that direction, what annihilates that is compassion." Right? It comes back to the heart, what's real here. Right? It's not about getting ahead, looking good, being something, wearing the perfect beads, being perceived as wise. All of that is like, that's just the ego intellectual game. Right? And we have to sh- learn how to shred that again and again. It creeps in. Right? It's like the paths start to get fuzzy. But when you're in your heart, it gets easily clarified. It's like right back onto this path. Got it. We correct. But if we don't have these balances, we're not able to self-correct and we can strengthen qualities that aren't onward leading. They're not true wisdom because it doesn't lead to freedom. It's not skillful. It doesn't lead to happiness. And that discernment is everything. We want to be happy. So... I think um, those are all my reflections tonight about what we're doing, and I just hope that it was in some uh, value for you, and it was just beautiful to sit with you. I know I haven't said much during the retreat till now. It's just the way our schedules are <laughs> laid out. But um, yeah, may we all just awaken together through this eagle and condor. May they merge in our hearts and grow for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So we'll just sit for a moment together.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.